This, 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 this is K-U-T. K-U-T. K-U-T, Austin. Stop. This is KUT Weekend for the first weekend of March 2018. Thank you for listening. I'm Ethan Bernier with KUT 90.5, the NPR station in Austin, Texas. Here's what we got for you this week. Port Aransas and Rockport want you to visit even if they're not quite ready. Our cash crop is tourism, and we're a tourism-based economy. No other resource of industry. A documentary about the violent arrest of an Austin elementary school teacher is up for an Academy Award this weekend. I thought that maybe she could help a general audience imagine what it's like to be in her shoes. And a review of a Korean barbecue restaurant off I-35. I can't think of anything I didn't like at Charm Korean Barbecue. Those stories and more in this edition of KUT Weekend. I was heartened to hear two months ago that you had at last begun the formal process to change those remaining names. Here's Austin ISD parent Nancy Mims addressing the school board last month about renaming schools named after men who served in the Confederacy. That you had created a protocol and a timeline and were choosing to lead the community to do what other cities and school districts have been doing across the country as a meaningful gesture that we would also be working toward recognizing and removing symbols that, while remaining on the schools, stand for the perpetuation and multiplication of white supremacy. This week, the AISD board did it. They voted to rename five school facilities. KUT's Claire McInerney reports on the conversation that led to the vote. The board voted 7-2 to to change the names of five district buildings, Lanier, Reagan, and Eastside Memorial High Schools, Fulmore Middle School, and the Allen Center. Trustees Ann Tyke and Julie Cowan voted against the name changes. The district asked the board to consider these name changes back in November. The East Austin Coalition for Quality Education held a press conference before the meeting to push for the change. Kazike Prince is the chair of the group and says this issue is simply about racism. When you support policies, programs, initiatives that continue a legacy of of racism that we know to be true, anything that's not a a statement or an act to to be anti-racist isn't a continuation of racism. Half of the public comment centered around the issue. Some, like parent Maggie McGifford, asked the board to make the changes. We have whitewashed our history for too long. We have failed to teach our youth and ourselves the full history of our community. We have left out so many voices in the names of our schools. Lanier teacher Medina Willis asked them not to change the names. She, like a few other speakers, were concerned about spending money on name changes rather than academic and facility needs at the schools. How can you say that changing names are social justice, yet ignore the inequities that are currently happening? Tom Randall opposed changing the names, too. He felt some of the namesakes, like Zachary Fulmore, shouldn't be defined by just his service in the Confederate military. He served on the board of trustees for the Texas School for the Blind. He campaigned religiously for public schools, free education for all. But then it came time for the board to vote. Trustee Ted Gordon put forward the motion to rename the schools. Unfortunately, as far as I can tell, I will be the only African-American who has had the opportunity to vote on the appropriateness of naming AISD schools after such Confederate-associated individuals in our district's history. Almost every board member preceded their vote with an explanation. Trustee Yasmeen Wagner said she was voting to rename the schools because some of them were named during the Jim Crow era. But what was finally the clarifying moment for me was to realize that at the end of the day, this really isn't about those individual men. It really is about the spirit 
with which those names were placed on that building? What was happening during the time that those names were appointed to those buildings? Others echoed this reasoning, but trustee Julie Cowan voted against the name changes because she felt the district and the board were imposing this change on communities that didn't ask for it, which she called a top-down approach. Trustee Amber Ellens voted for the change, but also said she was disappointed with the quickness and lack of clarity in the process. I'm challenged to understand why the administration did not begin its work with deep local conversations and soul searching. Such an approach could have played an exciting, unifying role in our vision of reinventing the urban school experience. Others on the board said that along with changing these names, the district has a lot of work to do in terms of equity for all of its students. AISD will now go to these school communities to get input on what the new names should be. Those naming committees will then present options to the board who will make the final decision. Claire McInerney, KUT News. Spring is on the way, and that means a lot of rain and potentially flash flooding. And the website that warns Central Texans of flooding on local roads is actually being overhauled this month. As KUT's Mose Michelle tells us, these changes will allow you to get more details about the flooding when it happens near you. ATXfloods.com has been visited 9 million times since it went online six years ago. It makes sense. We've had a lot of floods since then. And the website is basically a map showing what low water crossings are underwater. On a sunny day, it should be full of green circles to say the crossings are okay. During heavy rains, those green circles turn red in a flash. Matt Porcher says the website's been due for an upgrade for a while. Yes, yes. So I think everyone will be really excited to see this new version. Porcher works on Austin's flood early warning system team. He says the old site had maxed out on the amount of data it could share. That means they haven't been able to add more crossings. That won't be a problem with a new site. I think kind of the the neatest thing is we'll be able to add more jurisdictions in the Central Texas area. At some point this year, the site should also be able to provide text and email notification about specific crossings for people who sign up. Plus, you'll be able to take a look at images from more cameras set up at more crossings. Our goal is to provide a real time, like what's happening on the ground right now. Sean Richardson is with Beholder HQ, the tech company the city contracted to work on the site. He says the cameras also mean first responders won't have to check on crossings as often. And, Richardson says, this will help people understand the danger a flood poses. If you show an image, you can be like, wow, that water is really rising. And it's, it's hard to understand that if you haven't seen it firsthand, if you don't witness it. In the longer term, Richardson hopes to create a map like ATX Floods that covers the entire state of Texas. He also hopes to integrate it with navigation platforms like Waze and Google Maps. How powerful would it be if not only did your, your navigation software tell you, hey, there's congestion, but it goes, hey, actually, this water, this crossing is closed. And it can, you know, and it would know it because actually a city, county, et cetera, employee declared it was closed. The new ATX floods map should launch sometime later in March with some of the new features rolling out in the following months. May and June are traditionally two of the rainiest months in Austin. Mose Bouchel, KT News. for a while. I hope you've had a chance to visit Port Arantis. It's not far. It's like three hours south of here, and you can just sit on the beach 
and listen to the waves wash ashore, so relaxing. Bring an umbrella, some cold drinks, some music, a couple sandwiches. Mind you, the times that I went, that was before Hurricane Harvey hit that town hard, and it also hit nearby Rockport really hard. Both those places are planning aggressive marketing campaigns, hoping that you will remember the coast is open for business as we head to spring break just around the corner. As KUT's Jimmy Moss reports, one of those towns is looking for more of a gradual launch, while the other is hoping you'll come as soon as next week. The Port Aransas Chamber of Commerce and Tourist Bureau has a message for you. The city and its beaches are open for business. But why the rush? Our cash crop is tourism, and we're a tourism-based economy. No other resource of industry, so... We've been shut down since August 25th, and we've had very little money coming into the community. That's Jeff Hentz, president and CEO of the Port Aransas Chamber. He says they will be ready by next weekend to fill local hotel rooms, at least some of them. About 40 percent of those are going to be back open um, in March, taking visitors, and that's a big number. And we've got about 75 percent of our restaurants are going to be reopened by March 10th which is a huge number. Our bars are all open with the exception of one. And our beaches are phenomenal shape. Our fishing industry is halfway back already. Most seaside towns would be worried to begin the travel season without being fully operational. But Port Aransas doesn't have a choice. Tourism generates $400 million a year for the local economy. Hence estimates that nearly half that has been taken away by Harvey. Amy Van Winkle is the manager of the Tarpon Inn, a hotel that has stood in the wharf area of Port Aransas since the 1880s. She says she's looking to reopen the Tarpon in two weeks. But finishing repairs is only half the battle. We really want all of our ex-employees to come back to work for us because we had a really great team at the time of the hurricane. But they've been displaced to Rockport, Corpus, even some as far as Dallas. So getting them back here and finding them housing and stuff has kind of been a hurdle for us. It seems labor could be a bit of a choke point for much of Port Aransas's ambitions this spring. The chamber had a job fair last month. It drew only about half the number of applicants as there are jobs to be had through the summer. It's a different industry, but the lack of labor has been a factor in the rate of reconstruction on the island. Where we struggle, uh, it's just strictly because of sheer volume of work or in skilled or licensed trades and subcontractors, plumbers, electricians, things of that nature. That's Alan Stevenson, a general contractor in Port Aransas. He's got 40 jobs already in the pipeline. To fill those faster, he would need a bunch of new workers and places for them to stay. Just up the coast, housing will also be an issue for workers in Rockport because of similar factors as Port Aransas. Entire apartment complexes were knocked out by the storm. Several workers have been displaced to other towns. As of last week, the Walmart still does not have enough workers to stay open 24 hours. If there's no one here to work the restaurants and work the hotels and and provide those service-related jobs, the whole economy struggles. So it's the linchpin to our recovery is how do we get workforce families and workforce housing married up as quickly as possible to keep them here. Mike Kerner is director of Aransas County's long-term recovery team, a pilot program of sorts tapped by the governor to try to help residents in the Rockport area cut through the arduous red tape that has hampered past disaster recoveries. He says, unfortunately, the county has no control over housing, what he called its linchpin. It's controlled by federal dollars. It's controlled by federal programs. 
and the the state with the GLO and things like that. Uh, So our biggest challenge is the one we have the least control over. Kerner says what his office has been able to do is get Rockport as close to ready for business as possible. Everything from care and feeding of individuals to removing tons of debris from the county and city streets. So much debris, it was sorted, piled 10 to 20 feet high in mounds that at one time stretched for nearly two miles in the median on nearby Highway 35. Without all of that out of the way, it would be difficult for you to see Rockport the way Diane Probst would like visitors to. The water's still beautiful. The sun is still outstanding. You know, as you drive through the main arteries of the community, you're going to see a lot of the things that you've known Rockport Fulton for all these years. She is president of the Rockport Fulton Chamber of Commerce. She says they will launch their own visitors campaign later in March. The delay will allow more hotel rooms to come back online and for workers to return. She's eyeing summer before things really feel normal. But if folks just cannot wait, the town could still use help. She says even six months later, there's still volunteer opportunities in the cleanup. So coming back with the spirit of help will just catch us up even that much more. Both towns realize that they're not where they were a year ago or as far along as they'd like to be. But as one Port Aransas resident said, no matter what, we still have the beach. Jimmy Voss, KUT News. If you are a renter in Texas, there's probably a clause in your lease you have not noticed. It comes into play if you fail to pay your rent. As KUT's Saida Hassan explains, your landlord may have the right to come into your home and take your personal belongings. It's called a landlord's lien. In Texas, the process is authorized by state law as a way to recoup unpaid rent. But it's not as simple as a landlord walking into a tenant's apartment and taking whatever they want. There are really specific guidelines for how landlords can enforce a lien. Fred Fuchs is an attorney with Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid. A landlord's lien is a provision in a lease agreement that has to be underlined or in bold print in order to be enforced. Fuchs says a landlord can only take a tenant's property in exchange for unpaid rent, not past due utilities, maintenance, or other costs. There are also restrictions on what exactly a landlord can take. For example, they can't take a tenant's clothing, food, medicine, or family portraits, but they can take TVs, musical instruments, and furniture, with some exceptions. Fuchs has worked on a number of these cases over the years. He says tenants are usually surprised to learn their landlord has this right, that is, until they have to deal with it firsthand. Still, Fuchs says liens are typically not the first option landlords go to to secure payment. It's just a better practice and better for tenant relations if a landlord does not use the practice because there are other effective remedies, primarily trying to get the tenant into the office to talk about the rent and then using the eviction process, where a third party, a judge, can determine whether the tenant is in default. To invoke a landlord's lien, you don't need a judge. Because the rules are so specific, though, there's a lot of room for error. Landlords may take things they're not supposed to, or they may not leave the required written notice that they took something. In those cases, tenants have some recourse. Juliana Gonzalez is executive director of the Austin Tenants Council. The tenant can get damages. They'll obviously get back the property that was seized if it hasn't been sold yet. 
and they'll get the proceeds of anything that has been sold. And then they can also get a financial amount of one month's rent or $500, whichever is larger, as well as attorney's fees. Gonzalez says it's common for the Austin Tenants Council to see landlords' lien cases that are not executed properly. Oftentimes, landlords know that they have the right to pursue unpaid rent, but they they don't necessarily know the precisely right process to pursue that unpaid rent. And so at times they may be violating the law or violating tenants' rights. Gonzalez thinks the state's landlord's lien law, which went into effect in the 1980s, is outdated. For example, today landlords can still take people's phones and computers. However, the state law was initially designed to keep landlords from seizing things that are essential to someone's life or work. Saida Hassan, KUT News. The Academy Awards are this weekend, and one of the short documentaries up for an Oscar is about a local elementary school teacher, Brian Shanique King. Although you might be more familiar with her from her violent arrest by an Austin police officer, Brian Richter, during a traffic stop in 2015, in which King was thrown to the ground. Put your hands behind your back! Oh my God! Put your hands behind your back! You are underwear! Put your hands behind your back! Richter was fired by interim police chief Brian Manley earlier this year because of a different case in which he was accused of using excessive force and not being honest about it. But the HBO documentary, up for an Oscar, Traffic Stop, is mainly focused on King, who's African-American. My mom, she would tell me, you know, you're my, you're my beautiful chocolate baby. And, you know, looking back, you don't realize that, you know, she was letting me know that in this world, you know, people don't see your skin as beautiful. Hello? Hello, is this Kate? Yes, it is. I spoke to the director of Traffic Stop, Kate Davis, where she was getting ready for the Oscars in her hotel suite in Beverly Hills. There are so many controversial police use of force cases out there, some of them much more violent, some of them deadly. Why choose this one in Austin? to make a documentary about. I first saw a clip of Brian getting brutalized by this Austin cop that went viral shortly after it happened. There was a little clip of her speaking on camera, and I thought, you know, she lived to tell the story, which is not always the case. And she is a school teacher and had never been arrested before and was extremely articulate. That's how she struck me, and I thought that maybe she could help a general audience imagine what it's like to be in her shoes, that this kind of thing goes on all the time, that minorities are so much more in peril when they are pulled over, even for the most routine violations. Basically, I was I was inspired by her character and then went and met with her, and she needed to decide whether to go even more public and make a whole film about herself. And she chose to do so to try to make something good out of a very destructive situation. And for years, there were no cameras in police cars. Even this even this story, where I mean, credit where credit is due, uh, was broken by a local reporter, Tony Plahetsky. It took some digging by him. It may not have ever been known had there not been a camera in the police car. This documentary could not have been made without the, the police video footage? Yeah, I think it would have been the public probably would not have known about it. So dash cams have brought to light 
the reality of everyday conflict and physical abuse between police and citizens that we wouldn't have seen. It's probably been going on forever, but now technology has made encounters much more visceral and real, and one would think that it would make the police much more culpable legally, but in fact, it hasn't had much of an effect on the police. However, you know, we're hoping that this film will, we're taking it to police academies and, and, you know, really think that it could help begin a conversation about the need for de-escalation. How might this documentary be used as a teaching tool for police departments? Well, I think in the film, as you'll see, I mean, we have three different dash cam angles and there are sort of two main parts. I mean, one is you witness absolutely unequivocally how Officer Richter throws Brian to the ground several times. Oh my God, are you serious? Put your hands behind Oh my God. I'm about to taste you. Please no. You also hear him say that, claim that Brian took a swing at him, although that's not evident in the video, so that is questionable, that charge. And, and she was holding off the steering wheel the entire time. I finally got her yanked out. Once she got out of the car, she took a swing at me. She missed. But as she swing and I saw her coming, so I just threw her down. We got on the ground. I didn't, I didn't want to hit her, so we just kept kind of wrestling. And then the third element is you, Brian is taken to jail in the backseat of a escorting officer's car, and she questions him. But do you still believe that there's racism out there? Yes. I do. So how do you find Let me ask you this, though. Let me ask you this. Do you believe it goes both ways? I believe it does. I do. I do, too. But I believe that, I'm not, I'm not gonna lie, I believe that Caucasians has more supremacy over black people. Let's be honest. They have more rights. And a lot more people are a little afraid of black people because of everything. Honestly, why, why, well, let me ask you this. The, why, why are so many people afraid of black people? That's what I want to figure out. I can, I, can give you, I can give you a really good, a really good idea why it might be that way. Why? Violent tendency. And I want you to, I want you to think about that. I'm not saying anything. I'm not saying it's true. I'm not saying that I can prove it or nothing. But 99% of the time, when you hear about stuff like that, it is the black community that's being violent. That's why a lot of the white people are afraid, and I don't blame them. The film opens up into a kind of discussion and, and you know, outright portrait of the existence of racism in law enforcement. And, of course, it's everywhere else. I'm not trying to just pick on the police. But it's a conversation that should be had. And what I've learned is that in police training, the very few hours are spent around what they call communications or how police should interact with the public. Many more hours are spent on learning how to use a gun properly. So the film, Traffic Stop, could be used, first of all, because it's just a nice nifty 30 minutes. It's not a big, long feature. But also, it galvanizes a lot of the issues just by watching the evidence, dash cams, and you can see how an officer could be triggered by the smallest thing. And there wasn't a reason, I don't think, explicitly why he should have taken her down so aggressively, you know, really pinned her down to the ground and a violent confrontation. So if officers could see that and analyze the footage, 
they might be able to reflect and discuss it. They might be able to reflect on their own tendencies and possible triggers. Did you try to interview Officer Richter, the the other subject of the documentary? No, we didn't try to interview Officer Richter. I think the main reason that I didn't think it was important to pursue interviewing Officer Richter is because he is clearly in the film telling his side of the story to another officer on camera. So you hear his whole rendition of what went down. I didn't want to hit her, man. A little bitty thing, but she caught a good little fight. I finally got her in handcuffs, and we started walking, and she starts trying to yank away again. So I jacked her arms up over her head and held her there until I got my door, my door open. And that, that spoke for itself. Another reason is because the film really is about humanizing the victim of such abuse. And so it's really Breon's personal story. And I think any other elements would have taken away from that. So you see her, for example, as a school teacher. Is it half gallon or gallon? Which one is it? Half gallon. Very good. It's a half gallon. Yes, ma'am. I want my kids, I want my students to be successful. I want them to be able to flourish regardless of what situation they may be in. That was my approach. It wasn't a he said, she said legal analysis of what took place at all. It's really much more of a poetic look at this woman's life. Kate Davis is the director of the HBO original documentary, Traffic Stop. It's based on the 2015 arrest of Austin Elementary School teacher Breon King. You can watch Traffic Stop for free right now on HBO's website. The film is nominated for an Oscar that will be awarded during the televised portion of the Academy Awards, and King will be there at the awards ceremony on Sunday. Kate, thanks for talking to KUT. Thank you very much. In Central Austin, there's a government warehouse that sits kind of out of the way. It's on Shoal Creek Boulevard, surrounded by a tall, black, spiky metal fence. From the outside, it looks unassuming. But one listener wondered, what goes on in there? He asked about it for our AT Explained project. KUT's Matt Largy took him along to investigate. So there I was, sitting in my car. All right, I'm in the parking lot outside of the warehouse. I'm waiting for Eric, our question asker. We're going to find out what's in here. The rain was pouring down as I walked through the chain link gate with barbed wire on top. Eric Howard was already in, waiting outside the building. So what are we doing here? Well, I've always driven by this facility. In the early 80s, I worked nearby over here. And there were always sort of the rumors that it had secret cargo stored, you know. Government conspiracies. Jimmy Hoffa's concrete boots or aliens you know you never knew what was in here and it's such a nondescript building no windows kind of low slung back here so it sort of led you to think that there were secret things going on in here hiding in plain sight so he asked our AT Explained project just what goes on inside this state government building sign outside says state records center but what really goes on in there so what do you imagine it looks like in there? Well, I've always pictured this as being, the, you know, the end shot of Raiders of the Lost Ark, where they wheel the Ark of the Covenant in that box, and you just see an endless row of storage boxes and containers, and uh, that's what I hope we'll see inside. Okay. All right, well, uh, well, let's go ahead in and see what we find. 
I've arranged for a tour of the facility for Eric and I. Just see IDs. It's just a typical thing we do here for okay. we are a secure location. Standard procedure? Yes, sir. Michael Shea, the manager of the State Records Center, checks our IDs, signs us in, and we walk into a vast warehouse. Can you kind of explain what we're just where we are and what we're looking at right now? Sure, we're sort of at the main aisle of the old building here at the State Records Center. Uh, you're seeing thousands of boxes of records. Brown boxes line green shelves for what seems like miles. They're just like kind of stacked floor to ceiling in here. Yeah, we get the Raiders of the Lost Ark thing and, you know, Warehouse 13 and all those other comparisons all the time. So is the Ark of the Covenant in here somewhere? Maybe. <laughs> See if we can find it on this tour. <laughs> Michael leads Eric and I down the aisle. The space between the rows of shelves is just wide enough for a person to fit through. Row upon row of shelves and boxes, shelves and boxes, shelves and boxes. Michael points to a concrete column with the number 152 scrawled on it. Maybe some secret passcode? Uh, this number right here was written by the absent-minded record center manager before me who needed to know that there were 152,000 boxes that would fit on this side of the record center. Not a passcode, but still an impressive number of boxes. So what's actually in these boxes? Uh, 83 different state agencies and two local governments store all kinds of records here. Tons and tons of paper. Each of these boxes has a label. Three different kinds of labels. It all looks super organized, but the thing is, it's totally random. And that's by design. What's the benefit of randomness? Uh, basically, it's a layer of security so that uh, records are never placed all together in the same place. Basically, it's impossible to find a record here without access to our system. Really, only the folks who work in this building have that ability. So if someone wanted to steal a bunch of documents from the governor's office, let's say, they might find one or two boxes. But the randomized filing system means the rest could be anywhere in here. But what are they hiding? Is some of this stuff secret? I mean, stuff that the public would never be allowed to see? Yeah, there's definitely confidential records stored here. Records like social security numbers and dates of birth. I don't think there's any government secrets here, put it that way. But if we, you know, if there is, I'd love to stumble on them someday. If there are secrets, they probably don't go back very far. Most of the records in here are actually not that old. They're stored for a few years before they're allowed to be destroyed. There is some old stuff. I know I've seen microfilmed records that are recording, basically filmed records of things from the 1600s. 400-year-old documents? That's pretty cool. But I wonder what Eric thinks. Is this living up to your expectations so far? Oh, exceeding it. This is really cool. <laughs> records nerd. I should probably tell you, Eric does something like this for a living. He works in disaster recovery, so he's serious when he says he's a records nerd. As we stare down the endless rows of shelves, I can't help but wonder, why are all these records on paper? It's 2018. It's actually a lot cheaper to store the records here for 10, 15 years than it is to digitize them. They do digitize some stuff, and some records get put on microfilm. A big stack of marriage licenses are being fed into a machine that takes an image and puts it on film. And when we take a right through this door here, you'll see what they built in 1988. Started Michael shows us into another huge room stacked floor to ceiling with shelves and boxes. It's even bigger than the giant room with 152,000 boxes. A hand-scrawled number on another concrete column tells us 241,000 boxes are in this room. 
more or less. It's closer to 238,000. More boxes, more boxes, and then, whoa, what's this? This is the disaster recovery vault. Come on in. Inside the vault, there are more boxes. Uh, so this is where we store disaster recovery tapes, servers, uh, uh, coop plans, which is basically a backup plan for people. The stuff is for what's called continuity of operations. So if there's some kind of disaster and state agency offices are inaccessible or destroyed, the government can use this information to keep going or at least keep some of it going. I can't say that necessarily state government can be revitalized from this room in particular. Some state government can be started from this room. Outside the vault, we look at the big metal door that protects it. I'm told the vault is fireproof and blastproof. You couldn't close that door for me, could you? Uh, I think I could. The door lumbers closed as we await that satisfying vault shutting sound. Come on, but completely silent. A completely silent vault door, what are the odds? As we move toward the exit, there's a pallet of file boxes, each one marked with a red X. It's the end of the line for these records. They're headed for the shredder. Those are all going to be destroyed? Yes. Because that is truly the one thing you can't turn back from. You make a mistake in destruction, you can't bring those boxes back. So we're very careful with destruction. And destruction seems like a good place to end the tour. So, With that, Eric and I head back through the chain link gate, processing what we've seen. Now you've seen it all. Well, I don't think we saw it all. It was all in big cardboard boxes, about a million of them. But I'll take their word for it. As we leave, I can't help but thinking back to that Indiana Jones scene where they're hiding the Ark, put it in a box, nail it shut, padlock it. Did we see it all? There may be four floors below here they didn't take us in. This is all a cover, right? All this we saw here, million square feet of boxes, is all just an elaborate ruse to cover up what's in the basement. That's my story. Eric might be joking, but isn't it just more fun to imagine it that way? I think there's secrets in these buildings that it'll take many, many years to unravel, and you're just the guy to do it. And zoom out to show them wheeling the ark through the stacks of crates. That's the stuff. Matt Largy, KUT News. A particular style of slow-smoked barbecue out of Central Texas is making a name for itself around the globe. But Korean barbecue, a very different style of cooking, already has achieved worldwide popularity. Austin has a few Korean barbecue restaurants. And joining us to talk about one that's been around for a couple years now is Austin American Statesman restaurant critic Matthew Odom. Hello, Matthew. Hey there, Nathan. What is the experience at Charm Korean Barbecue at Howard Lane and I-35? So you go into Chum Korean Barbecue, and one of the first things you're going to notice are these really nice hoods over many of the tables, these metallic hoods that you'd see in a kitchen. That's because you are cooking at your table, should you so choose. They have these gas-fired grills. They almost look like hubcaps with little holes in them where the flames come up. And then you can order 
all you can eat. You know, there's an all you can eat sign outside, which I think doesn't do the place justice because it makes it feel like a trough. But I usually just stay with the initial serving so I could eat more of the other dishes. You have a, a slew of meat to choose from. You can get bulgogi pork or bulgogi beef. You can get marinated short rib or beef tongue if you pay a little bit extra. You can get prime rib. So there's there's all these different kinds of meats that they bring to your table raw. They spread them out. They give you some tongs and a scissors, and you just go to work. Bulgogi, I think most people know, it's that kind of umami bomb elixir that's usually soy and sugar and sesame oil, garlic, black pepper. It's kind of what's caused a craze with Korean fusion food o- over recent years with people making tacos and burgers and everything out of it because it's just so darn addictive. Besides the meat, what else is on the menu? If you're getting the Korean barbecue, you'll get these side dishes about a half dozen of them. And so you get this quick pickled kimchi with fish sauce and a little bit of dried shrimp. You're going to see a ton of radish. Here it's in a tart vinaigrette. You get steamed broccoli and kind of a sour gojujang pepper sauce spiked with horseradish. The funky tug of fish cakes are in another dish. And uh, even... Hot dogs, which I'll, really? which I'll let people discover on their own. It was it was amazing. We thought, are these carrots? And she said, no, no, they're hot dogs. And our server was actually this wonderful woman. Each time I went, it turned out she was our server. And she had us call her emo, which is the Korean word uh, meaning aunt. And so there was this real familial, fun vibe to the place. Uh, and she led us through the rest of the menu beyond the Korean barbecue as well. Is it a casual restaurant or place you might want to wear something a little nicer? It kind of looked like Cannoli Joe's Cantina, you know, like a generic former Italian restaurant that was also formerly a Mexican restaurant that has this weird mishmash strip mall feel to it, but it's very clean, very casual, very friendly. So it's definitely not a uh, suit and tie kind of place. Okay. What are the prices like? So if you order the Korean barbecue, you're looking at $24.99, $17.99 for a kid. Then you can upgrade to the premium. It has that other beef I mentioned, the prime rib, nicer cuts for $34.99. But if you go at lunch, you can just get a lunch special, which is three quarters of a pound of one or two meats for $15.99. And then you get all those banchan with it as well. So that's a really great deal. There's a whole bunch of other dishes, actually. What are those other dishes besides the Korean barbecue? There's japchae, which are translucent sweet potato noodles. They're sheen with sesame oil and tangled up with a vibrant mix of peppers. They have scallion and kimchi pancakes. There's also great stews. There's a kimchi stew with perilla leaf that has that kind of licorice taste to it with simmering pork neck and black sesame seeds. There's stir-fried octopus and a spicy sauce with jalapenos and charred green onions and zucchini. There's also a really interesting soup that is a cold kimchi broth that's poured over thin-sliced beef and hearty buckwheat noodles, which was excellent and something I hadn't tried before. And of course, galbi jim, which is described as a short rib stew, but it's really hunks of meat in this kind of viscous liquid that has radishes in it and chestnuts and streams of eggs. And it's uh, sweetened almost like beef caramel with dates that are in there as well. So there's not dessert there. So just uh, have galbi jim for dessert. All right. Well, it sounds like you really liked Charm Korean Barbecue. That's right. I can't think of anything I didn't like at Charm Korean Barbecue. Well, you can find Charm Korean Barbecue at Howard Lane and I-35, and you can read Matthew Odom's review at austin360.com slash the feed. Matthew Odom is the Statesman's restaurant critic. Thanks for coming by, Matthew. Always a pleasure, Nathan.
That's KUT Weekend for the first weekend of March 2018. Thank you so much for listening. This commercial-free podcast is brought to you by the people who support local nonprofit journalism at KUT. If you are one of those people, thank you so much. And if you are not, you're welcome to join them if you want to. KUT.org is the place to do it. You can subscribe to this podcast very easily at weekend.kut.org. Email me any questions or comments at Nathan at KUT.org or just ask me on Twitter. I'm at KUT Nathan. Our theme music is by REC. Have a great day. I'm Nathan Bernier with KUT 90.5 at KUT.org. Bye.